Hey guys, and welcome back to the Back to Gold podcast. It's episode 22. My name is Cameron Smith, and I will be your host today. And joining me, as ever, is my co-host, Jamie Monks. Jamie, how you doing, mate? I've heard you've uh, played quite a bit of golf recently. Yeah, I've been on uh, a little bit of a, a grind, so to speak. Um, two rounds on the weekend, doubled again today. Um, you know, on, on Sunday... Managed to bag myself three birdies. I, I don't like to boast about golf too much, <laughs> and I know, um, you know, but when it comes to football, there's not much golf chat apart from you know Gareth Bale retiring now. Oh yes, he, of course. He's, he's going to be you know playing every course in America probably. Um, you know, obviously, there's been a lot of talk today about you know is he the you know the best British player of all time? He's certainly in the conversation for me. You know, I mean, no one else has won. You know, five Champions Leagues as as a Brit. Um, but yeah, there will be you know some people who you know saying you know the, the way his career finished, perhaps not not the way in, in terms of legacy that you'd like to go out. But what what he's done for Wales for the last decade, and you know what he did at Madrid. You know, yeah, I think the, the thirteen fourteen Champions League final and the seventeen eighteen he won. You know, for me single handedly. Um, and yeah, yeah, just what a player, what a guy. Yeah, I, yeah, I think he's he's certainly in the conversation. I think I've seen a lot of chat about um, him versus Rooney is sort of something I've seen quite a lot. Um, I think like the discourse over greatest British player of all time is quite. Um, I'm not sure really, but like in terms of it's it's definitely like the last fifteen to twenty years has got a chance of being the best you know, British player, but looking back to all time, it is pretty hard to, I always find it's pretty hard to compare like modern players to players in like the sixties, like comparing him to like Bobby Charlton or something like, I mean, we've never seen Bobby Charlton play, um, but obviously was an exceptional player. So it's hard to sort of compare generations, but in terms of like his generation, yeah, like Bale was outstanding for Tottenham uh, in the Premier League, was then brilliant for Real Madrid and obviously ended at Madrid with him sort of being on the bench, the the memes of um the golf that he was sort of prioritising over Madrid, the the Wales flag he, he lifted when they qualified for um was it what well, the well, qualified for the World Cup, wasn't it? And he was lifting the uh was it Wales Golf Madrid flag or and and that kind yeah, of thing. So it sort of tarnished his legacy at at Real Madrid. Um so yeah, like you say, that the end of his career hasn't quite gone to plan, I guess for him and he's what 33 so it's quite like an early retirement really you think about you know like Ronaldo's still going obviously I know he's he's moved to to Saudi Arabia like Thiago Silva still playing the highest level in the Premier League at 38 so Bell at 33 is like it's quite early but I guess like for him like he's over in America sort of his career at the top level in Europe's probably over he probably I'm not sure how many teams would be able to would be able to get Bell if he hadn't retired and whatever and he gets to go and play golf which is Probably what he'd quite enjoy doing, and probably what you'd probably quite like doing as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, in in my mind, I, I think he fell out of love with football probably three or four years ago. But I think after not qualifying for the the, the Russia World Cup in twenty eighteen, I think in his head he thought, "We'll give this. We'll, we'll give Qatar a go." Obviously, they qualified. They didn't quite go the the, the way he would have wanted in the groups. Obviously, crashing out. But I think that that was his sort of goal. Get getting uh, Wales to the to the World Cup for the first time in sixty four years, and then bow out. Um, yeah, last goal. Yeah, yeah, he scored their first goal. Was it in the tournament? Yeah. Um, that was their only goal, wasn't it? Yes. So so yes. yeah, scored scored their only goal of the World Cup for first time in what was sixty four years, like you said. So I think yeah, I think I think make a good point there. Like the international legacy is is a massive one and he probably did after the you know the success of Euro twenty sixteen he probably did want to just go and play in a World Cup. Like Giggs never played in a World Cup. Um so Bale's like definitely overtaken Giggs's like legacy within Wales, I'd argue. Um oh, yeah. in terms yeah. of in terms of like who their best ever player was. Obviously Giggs has what Premier League record for appearances, but um or Manchester United or whatever it is, but yeah, like Bale has done outstanding stuff for the national team and at club level, and yeah, you know, for him, I guess the retirement is the decision he's made, and I guess like I'll miss like Prime Bale, like Prime Bale was such a joy to watch, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah, no, that that uh, 2013, 2012-13 season, there's not been you know too many more iconic looks than him in that sort of grey and black shirt with the yellow oh, yeah. Adidas, Adidas boots. Um, yeah. 
The goal he scored was, versus West Ham, West Ham at Upton Park. Yeah. That was a yeah. He, he was definitely in that season. That's like a for me a, a top ten individual season. Right? I mean, obviously didn't win anything at the end of it, which is always the classic sort of thing you throw at Tottenham players when they have a good a good individual <laughs> season. You know, we've seen it with Harry Kane for, for the last sort of five to six years. Um, but yeah, you know, just 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 sad to see him go really because he he was you know one of the best players for the last sort of decade or so. Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, Bale, Bale at Spurs and his early years at Madrid was one of my favourite players to watch. Like, it was just so, like, electric. Like, made things happen when he got on the ball. So direct at times. And, yeah, he was brilliant. And to think that, sort of, he, he came through as a left-back is pretty immense. And that that transition to a, to a world-class winger was certainly a joy to watch. Um, and, uh, Gareth, we wish you the best in your time. And not that you ever listen to this, but I thought it's, <laughs> worth, it's worth mentioning anyway. All right, uh, Cameron, let's address the elephant in the room. You went out of the country, mm-hmm. probably illegally, on some <laughs> sort of dodgy Don't say that. Turin. It, was an easy, it was an easy jet play there. All right, I'll, I'll let you off. I'll let you off. Um, you went to Turin mm-hmm. to, to watch the mighty the mighty Juve, the old lady, on, on Saturday. How was it? Yeah, it was really good, thank you. Uh, the trip was, was really nice. Um, Turin... Went with my dad, um, so that was really nice. Our first sort of trip abroad with just me and him. Um, so yeah, it was really nice. Went on on Friday, um, explored the city a little bit. Friday evening, just sort of went out for some food and food and some drinks, and then Saturday did a, a free walking tour um, around the city. Got to see all the sites, sort of all the history of Turin. Um, really interesting, and the yeah, and there, and then it was sort of making your way to the Allianz Stadium. Um, the atmosphere was like immense from the start. Like in the UK, you sort of get there and until about 15 minutes before kickoff, everyone's in the concourse. Um, that just like wasn't the case at all. Like, the concourse was completely empty. Everyone just got straight in and like straight to the seat, starting to create an atmosphere. Um, then sort of five minutes before kickoff, they sung like the UV song they sing um, before games. And that was sort of an experience. I mean, I hadn't really sort of brushed up on what to expect, but yeah, sort of. You sat inside your seats, everyone stands up, scarf in hand, sings, um, sings the U of A song they sing before games. And that was really, really cool to see, like just the whole stadium standing up singing a song. Um yeah, and, and the game itself, um, there were times in which it was there was there was dull moments of it. Um it's UV under Allegri, so it's not perhaps the most entertaining style of football, but like for the most part, I think there was actually a, a good game. Um, Juve probably sc- could have scored a few more goals than they did. Um, obviously, Danilo grabbed a, a winner in sort of the 86th minute, um, thanks to an assist from Chiesa. And, but, you know, Moise Keane had a chance in the first half. He probably should have put away. Moretti had a chance. Rabio just before that um, Danilo goal, there was a 4v2 that Rabio just like completely messed up, like driving from his own half, 4v2, and just managed to completely just like... <laughs> play the ball behind I think it might have been um, Fagioli on the right just behind him and it completely you know killed the attack and let Udinese get back so Juve definitely could have scored a few more but me and dad were pretty relieved when Danilo scored that we hadn't come this way and seen a nil-nil that's for sure um, so yeah no really good game really good trip um, and I can at least say I've gone abroad to, to watch a game of football this season like you you could do uh, with Benfica yeah brilliant stuff Cam I, I did notice um that when I went to watch Benfica, sort of the build up before the game, like uh, when when we came out of the metro, there was like um, pyros everywhere under this motorway bridge, just building an atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. And I, 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 I was talking to it. I think it might have been with uh, Justin Gibson. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, and we, we were. I, I was. I was saying to her, um, like when it comes to support, I just think I, it, when it comes to European support, it, it just there's just so much more enthusiasm and sort of mm. atmosphere compared to most. And in fact, to say all sort of um, English stadiums, I think that's yeah, mainly, I because, mainly because like, um, <laughs> there was no security checks for flares or anything. <laughs> the game Benfica. Um, they, they just let you just waltz in with, with anything. Um, really? Yeah, wow. Sort of, sort of like the, the the tradition and sort of like the stuff before the games, like there was an eagle flying in. That was on, cool. I heard you say. I remember you saying about that. On, onto a Benfica sort of crest, and it um, 
yeah, compared to going Old Trafford, it's just like, well, I mean, why am I a United fan? I should be full-time <laughs> Benfica, just, just for the ego. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely like to get what you mean. Like, yeah, Juve, the, the fans were in there, like right from the start of the ultras behind the goal, literally like 45 minutes before kickoff, like, right when the teams were coming out to warm up. Um, you had sort of sound from the sound system coming, playing songs and stuff, but you also had the fans just chanting and stuff. Um, and yeah, it was it was really cool. Like our view from the pitch, we were like right up in the sky. We were second row from the top, so you could see the whole pitch and everything. And and it was so steep, like the step, steps going up, like they fit so many seats in there. Um, despite like the, the the size of it and whatever. Um, but you can just see in the far corner. And also one thing to know actually, the Udinese away support. There was literally about a hundred of them. The away support. I don't know if it's just it was just for this game or anything, but the away support in Allianz Stadium it was just this tiny little strip. And literally, there were barely any Udinese fans, but they made actually like a cracking amount of noise, to be fair to them. Um, obviously, you know, disappointing result, but they made a lot of noise for, for only a few hundred people. I can't imagine it would have been more than, you know, 200, really. It was it was really small support, but um, made a lot of noise. And, you know, Juve in the end got the win. And, and thankfully, because I think that there were a lot of groans and complaints um, from, you know, fans around me um, in the ground about sort of, Missed chances and misplaced passes. They were getting particularly frustrated at like Western McKenney, um, for just misplacing the ball quite a few times. Um, so yeah, it was a sense of relief I think when Danilo scored. And I think there was a couple of talk like talking points I took away from the game, and and one of them was on Locatelli in midfield because I mean McKenney first of all started at right wing back, um, which was weird in itself, and then moved into centre mid, and then moved back out to right wing back, um. And he was, I thought he was actually okay, to be fair. I, I don't think he had the best of games, but he wasn't the glaring problem for Juve. But Locatelli, I think, was was really poor. And he just seemed to, like, at, at Sassuolo, he was such a good progressive passer. And even for Italy, when he was, um, you know, playing at the Euros, before, when Verratti was injured and, and were playing in their qualifiers and stuff. But in this game, he just passed backwards at almost every opportunity. It just sort of killed Juve attack like they'd, they just sort of seemed to prioritise like circulating possession rather than any penetration. And it just led to like Moise Keane and getting completely isolated up front. Um, and yeah, it was just, it's weird, like Locatelli going from such a, you know, one of Europe's best midfielders at Sassuolo. And I still rate Locatelli. I still think he's a good player. Like there's a good player in there, but it's just, it was quite, it was just negative really from him. And I expect a lot more like going there. I think Rabiot was certainly the better player in that midfield and Moretti was a little bit disappointing actually I think I expected a little bit more from him but Locatelli has, has certainly disappointed me when I was going there and hoping for a sort of midfield masterclass from him um, what are your thoughts on Locatelli though, like just in general because at Sassuolo like it was unbelievable wasn't it yeah uh, yeah I agree the Sassuolo form he showed I mean I was begging for United to sign him because we needed <laughs> a, a progressive six like that at the time um, obviously we've got Casemiro now, so yeah, not as not as useful. Um, but yeah, no, it has it has seemed since he's gone to to Juve, he has sort of regressed quite a bit in, in terms of just the hype, and obviously uh, you are talking about his level of performance in this game. Mm. But I, I think maybe I was I was thinking about this the other day when you go to like a big club like Juve, the, the the sort of magnifying glass on you just it becomes so much bigger. Because I, I was thinking about how, say, if, if Cucurella stayed at Brighton, yeah, we'd all be we'd all be probably thinking he's still a good player, but mm. he's, he's gone to Chelsea and become just terrible, just objectively, <laughs> just not good. Um, mm. and it, it's that added pressure. There's so many more eyes on you now. Locatelli is especially just you know looking for you know a mistake to sort of jump on and say, oh, why have we signed him? You know what what's going on here? We've wasted money again. Um, but you know Locatelli, how old is he now? Twenty four, twenty five. He's still got yeah, mid twenties. Yeah, so got time on his side, and and you'd expect him to you know turn out a top class midfielder like we all predicted him to be. Yeah, you hope so. It was just, it was from the from the get go really. Like the, I think his first couple of touches, Udinese were pressing Alexandra in, in the far corner, um, and he got the balls with a heavy touch. He misplaced a couple of passes like straight out of play, like in the first ten minutes, and just set a tone for quite a poor performance, really, like an underwhelming performance. Um, and like his replacement, um, Paredes, who came on in in the second half, quite early in the second half, um, Chiesa came on at the same time, and Paredes just looked way better, like. 
the first thing he did was he had an option to play it back to I think it was either Rogani or Alexandro and instead played with like being pressed from behind and instead played like a sort of sideways pass to um, I believe it was Moretti and that immediately like opened up the angles rather than going backwards all the time like Locatelli had done sort of started to open up some angles for Juve to start creating some chances and obviously Paredes was sort of the instrumental part in the goal itself like overhit corner it comes to Paredes on the edge of the box and just clips a lovely reverse sort of chip through ball into Chiesa chests it down and then volleys it across goal for Danilo to sort of tap in he almost missed it put it in the roof of the net and it was sort of one of those well, phew, he's actually he's actually scored it rather than missed for about, you know, four or five yards out. Um watching it live, it seemed like, you know, the keeper had done nothing really too wrong. But obviously you watching on TV and, and I wanted to point out how you think like Silvestri could have probably done a little bit better. Yeah, no, I just think there's there's not many options for Kiesa. Like, the angle's too tight for him to shoot, I think, there. Well, I don't know. Kiesa scored some ridiculous goals in the past. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he was ever going to score from there, really. Yeah. So I, I just think he doesn't anticipate the square ball. Maybe he's not aware that Danilo's coming in at the back post. He's he's just not really alert and alive to that, you know, square ball across the box. Maybe because he just thinks, you know, the way the way Kiesa takes it down and just puts it across so quickly it is, you know, really slick, really quick. You know, a chest mm. and then a. No, no bounce straight across goal uh, for Danilo, but I, I just thought Silvestri could have potentially done better. The, the same way that you know we were talking about before, Kepa could have done better for the, the Mares goal in midweek. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, Chiesa. That was the one bright spot. That was the one where he's like, yeah, he's done that so quick, um, and it maybe hasn't given Silvestri time to set. But for the most part, Chiesa was a little bit disappointing. Like when he came on, the cheer from the st- stadium was. You could you could tell everyone was like you know get Chiesa I want to see Chiesa play and and he's sort of just disappointed but I think Allegri's not helping him because he brought him on at right wing back and moved McKenney into central midfield um, and then he took off Kostic and moved um, Chiesa to left wing back and it's just I mean playing the formation is three five two I mean Chiesa's either going to fit in at wing back or in the front two um, and you do preferably want him out wide but it's just clearly not a role that he's particularly adept in um and it does look like the injury sort of caused him to lose like half a yard of pace because he he did just he didn't really take anyone on 1v1 like Chiesa at his best um you know at the Euros when you saw it or Juve during that season when him and Ronaldo were having a really good connection he was so explosive like he used to just go and beat players for fun um using that direct explosiveness that he had like go either side um and I just didn't really quite see that um so that assist as will hopefully be sort of a starting point for Chiesa. Obviously, his, his minutes have sort of been built back up slowly by Allegri. Um, so you'd imagine a, a start comes pretty soon for him and hopefully he can get back to those levels that, um, you know, we've seen him produce at the Euros and before for Juve. But yeah, Allegri's tactics not potentially helping um, him, but at the end of the day, they've won sort of two games back-to-back, 1-0 against Cremonese midweek and then here against Udinese and he's just now eight league wins in a row for Juve. They're up to second. They've not conceded in those eight games. They've not conceded since their 2-0 loss to Milan in sort of mid-October. Um, it's not potentially the most sort of offensively attractive style of play like the fans were getting frustrated sometimes but like it's clearly working for Allegri and I guess that's the only thing that really matters. Yeah, I mean, when we were talking about Juve uh, at the start of the season, um, we, we were both calling for Allegri's head pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and th- this this turnaround has sort of come out of nowhere, I think. Uh, but I, uh, he's not really changed his system much, has he? He's, he's brought in you know youngsters like Moretti to sort of mm. relight the spark in the team, give that team a bit of energy. But he's not changed anything massively. So no, are, yeah, I think it's it, like relying on late goals as well. It's sort of similar to how. Um, PSG relied on Mbappe late goals under Pochettino. Like obviously, Milik scoring the free kick in midweek, Cremonese that was in stoppage time. This is an eighty-sixth minute winner. Like it is sort of just getting over the line, just and you'd think that they'll get found out eventually, but maybe not. I guess that they've done it eight eight games in a row now. Yeah, I mean they've got such a sort of snowballing bit of momentum going here. But you're looking at the the game next weekend against Napoli. You think this is actually a, a closer contest. And then some might have first thought, um, you know, they're only seven points off now after mm. Napoli got that win uh, against against uh, Sampdoria. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, you know, a couple of months ago, we we weren't we were all saying they're completely out of it, but this, this run that they're on has you know got them straight back into the title race. Yeah, and they've got two massive games, like you say, Napoli's next, and then it's Atalanta in the league after that. Um, there's a Coppa Italia game against Monza sandwiched in between those two. But yeah, next two league games are massive for you. And if they can pick up, you know, two wins there, that's absolutely massive. And it means they are just it somehow in the race to uh, to win the title. Right then, we'll move on to the Premier League then. Um, obviously, the Premier League had midweek games um, just before I went away to Turin, um, but there wasn't time for us to record a podcast and we thought um, it makes sense to sort of group them together with Serie A, with La Liga. Obviously, the FA Cup um, took place this weekend, but we're not going to discuss the FA Cup. Um, just keep it to Europe's top five leagues and sort of ignore the cup competitions. We, we might reference them here and there um, in regards to our, our talking points from the Prem, but, but not in isolation. Um, and we'll start with Brentford then, mate, because obviously they won 3-1 against Liverpool. Our last episode of fil- was filmed just after that game, but we didn't reference it, saving it for this episode. And it was an excellent display from Brentford and sort of proof that they maybe don't need Ivan Tony when, you know, obviously he might be banned for a while. We don't know what the consequences of that um, betting charges are going to be, but Wissa was unbelievable, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, against the high line of Liverpool, this is sort of the front two you want, probably over Tony, because, you know, Wissa mm. and Mbwemo both, you know, so good at penetrating in behind. Um, and we saw for the, you know, the corner... The, the, the corner that got them the, the first goal, the Canotto goal, it was Bemo running behind, behind in behind Van Dijk, who I have to say looked extremely sluggish recovering mm. uh, to catching Bemo. He just didn't really get close to him, to be honest. Um, and then obviously they scored, scored from the corner. Um, but yeah, de- definitely in, the, in these games where, where they are sort of sitting in on the counter attack, you, you'd probably say. Vissa being in the team is probably a plus, and, and and Tony, you know, being injured, sort of helped them out a little bit. Yeah, it's strange to think. I guess Tony against United in that massive win, Tony was obviously excellent there. Um, played the free ball from from Buemo's goal. Um, in that game, so I do think Tony still has his benefits against the bigger team, and he can drop in and playmate, which is something that is sort of a real attribute in his game that Wissa perhaps doesn't have. But Wissa, yeah, like you say, probably does have slightly more in-behind threat. And yeah, brilliant. Obviously had two goals rules out, ruled out for our side by VAR um, and then eventually finally got one that was allowed. Um, so yeah, really, really great for him because it was looking like it was just not going to be his day in terms of actually getting a goal that counted. Um, mm. But the fact that he had two goals ruled out for, by VAR just shows how sort of porous Liverpool were, especially from set pieces. And, and Brentford have shown like in the past that like they did it against United with Ben Mee or Martinez right at the start of the season. Like they've shown that they are really efficient from set pieces. Um but this game I thought was like absolutely like a mismatch from corners. Liverpool just didn't really know what to do. And you've got to think that coming into a game against Brentford, you know that set pieces are going to be a massive way they're going to hurt there's two ways. Probably set pieces and runs in behind when they're sitting in a deep block like with Mbwemo. Like he is so good on the counter-attack Mbwemo. Like I can't imagine Liverpool like didn't work on defending corners, but it looked like they had like no defensive structure in that regard. Yeah, uh, this sort of it, it gave me a bit of nostalgia back to you know before when when Liverpool didn't have Van Dijk and Allison for set pieces because before that they were leaking goals so much. I remember on the first game in the season, I think it was seventeen eighteen. Um, oh, I forgot his name. Watford attacker went to Italy, played for Udinese, um, Nigerian. That's gonna uh, hit. That's gonna uh, hit. Isaac, Isaac success. No, 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 no. Not. Uh, it was taller. That's gonna kill me. Um, but he he scored. I think he scored one or two goals against Liverpool on the opening day, and like the defending from the set pieces and the corners, were just it was it was awful to watch. You know, funny for me, obviously, but um, <laughs> that that it, it reminded me of that that sort of period. In, in in you know Klopp's first couple of years, where they just couldn't seem to get any sort of control when it came to clearing set pieces or just looking you know safe in the box when it comes to defending crosses, um, and yeah, no, this it, it looked like every time they had a corner, it was like it was like a penalty kick almost. Yeah, it literally was like Watford would give that the XG from those corners. Like it looked like it would have been absolutely massive because Liverpool just didn't really know what to do, and I think that is a massive problem, especially 
when Liverpool just didn't also didn't look like they had many ideas going forward. Obviously, Nunes had a couple of chances and was dangerous in behind, but like they didn't actually create much other than Oxley Chamberlain's goal. And I think that that is just as much a problem as the defensive issues because Liverpool in the past have been able to just create chances of fun. Like you, like Trent, obviously, that was his first assist of the season, which is pretty mental. The fact we're in January, he's only just got his first Premier League assist of the season. Um, but that'll be just as concerning to Klopp because, you know, you've got... that's You're going to add defensive issues, really, to the, to the roster of issues they've got. Like, midfield still needs to be fixed, and they just didn't create enough chances either. And obviously, Gakpo's now arrived... Um, and it, you know, he's obviously a, a player who's been really creative in the area of his. He can a lot of assists, but whether that frees up the likes of of Salah and Nunes and gets them more chances, I don't know. But Klopp will need to sort of figure out some answers because, like, obviously in reference to the FA Cup as well, like against Wolves, like they should have lost that game. Like, um, the offside, you know, VAR not working. Like Toti Gomez's goal, like, should have stood. Um, Salah probably was offside as well from the one that. Gapo played in behind and, and Toti headed. Um, Salah was offside from the original oh, no, it, ball. It, it, so it, it's yeah, like... he was offside, but that's that's the rule, isn't it? That that's that strange rule where because Totti wants to you know play the ball, Salah's not offside anymore. And, I and think it's still offside though because he he's offside from the original ball. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no but because because Totti's had that ball, mm. the, the new rule is I think it came in two or three years ago. It's a new phase of play, and Salah's now onside, which. To me, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that doesn't make any it, sense. The, the, the only reason Totti's gone to head the ball is because Salah's there behind him in an offside yeah. position. He's affecting him. But mm. that, that's why that goal stood. Because the, the, like, everyone saw it was offside. But the, uh, when they were explaining it on the TV, they just said, oh, yeah, no, it's, it's this new rule because Totti's gone to head the ball. Um, Salah's onside. Um, I, I also forgot to mention that um, this is goal. It comes straight from one of his other disallowed ones, doesn't it? It's Allison plays the ball to Harvey Elliott, and Harvey Elliott, after just conceding well a disallowed goal, so you're sort of under pressure a little bit. Hmm. He goes to do a dummy for Simicast, like he lets it through his legs, and then they lose the ball from that, and then Brentford just go and score straight away. Just such a stupid decision from Harvey Elliott. I, I couldn't believe it. I- I remember Karen talking about it after the game. I was just laughing because it was just so naive to think, yeah, we were under pressure. Let, let me just try a dummy in my own third after just conceding a, a disallowed goal. And I, I think that, yeah, their midfield problem is just, uh, it, it's, it's not a Liverpool midfield we've, we've known under Klopp. You know, Thiago and Elliot aren't the most physically imposing, um, you know, the, the Liverpool teams in the past, they've just suffocated you in, in the press um, with, with, you know, the likes of Wijnaldum, Milner and Henderson. But with with Thiago and Elliot in there, you know, physically not being able to, you know, put on some sort of intense press, mm-hmm. teams are just playing through him so easily. And we, we saw it with, with Wolves the other day when um, Nunes came on. It was so easy for him to just carry it out of midfield and into the final third. And I, I think they have to get a midfielder. They have to sign someone quickly in, in in this transfer window because they are, you know, looking like potentially not even getting top four. Yeah, that is the 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 area of the pitch that both Chelsea and Liverpool um need to strengthen. Like very evidently, like it's been shown by Chelsea obviously going for Enzo Fernandez. It now looks like that's not going to happen with Chelsea sort of refusing to pay the release clause, despite originally saying they were going to pay the release clause. Um. So Benfica, look, are they going to keep him? But in terms of Liverpool and Chelsea, like they, they do just need extra bodies in there and also quality in there. Um, Chelsea look like they need someone of like Zakaria's profile because at the moment Zakaria has turned from someone who, who barely got a look in before the World Cup to Chelsea's sort of most important midfielder. Like you saw the difference um, between him in the side against City in the one 0 loss um, at Stamford Bridge, and then the difference without him in the um, in the four 0 loss in the cup and. Clearly, Chelsea needs someone like that uh, in midfield and Liverpool also because, like, Harvey Elliott in midfield, 
that does it work too much Tiago obviously you've previously shown how you said how sort of don't really rate him too highly Fabinho's legs look like they've gone Henderson again we, we've spoken about him before so both teams clearly have issues in central midfield and it is something that they're probably gonna have to dip into the January market or they could probably gonna have to accept that they're not going to get top four because I don't think even them get top four unless they sign a central midfielder um this January yeah. and then we'll um we'll go on to another talking point from the Premier League then um and following uh, Everton's 4-1 loss to Brighton obviously scored right at the end um, a penalty that Rob Sanchez gave away so it was 4-0 till stoppage time really um, is it time you know for Frank Lampard to leave and, and Everton to, to sign you know get someone else in board uh, I was amazed when I realised he was going to be managing uh, against United on, on Friday because I just thought you know, the amount of booze you, you hear it when when Gross you know, runs through and, and chips Pickford, like the, yeah. just the the aggressive booze just ringing around Goodison Park, I thought, yeah, no, he's toast here. But he seems, he's still here. He's, he's After losing 3-1 against United in the FA Cup as well, he's not been sacked. Um, I, I thought he would have been, to be honest. Um, who's the next fixture against who Everton playing next? Uh, Everton's next game. Uh, in the Premier League, is a massive one against Southampton. Like that is literally yeah. like season defining. You'd think that that would sort of make or break his job. That this is it. Now you have to win this game. Um, obviously, you know the, the, the issues at Everton sort of you know run a bit deeper than that. You know the ownership. There's been a lot of calls from Everton fans for them to go. Um, I, I saw in terms of managerial replacements for Lampard, a lot of a lot of Everton fans sort of. Um, Wanting Sean Dyche in just because. Yeah, I've seen that as well. Yeah, um, yeah the, they don't rate their squads massively right now, and, and they just think you need someone like Sean Dyche who will just get the best possible performance out of the players that he's got. He's not someone who demands, you know, ridiculous budgets in, in transfer windows. He will just work with resources and, you know, keep you in the Premier League, which is what they definitely need right now. Yeah, I think. Like Brighton played well. Like this isn't taken away from Brighton. Like Deserby, we've mentioned it before. How much we're we're both massive fans of him. Um, and massive fans of this Brighton squad. Um, the way that they're able to play out from the back is, is so impressive. Um, just the way that Cole will especially like will just put his foot on the ball, stand still, wait for oppositions to come and press him, and then they play out because oppositions, you know come out of their defensive structure to try and press it is so impressive and you know Matoma is starting to shine now um, obviously got another goal and, and you know he's been praised widely and, and rightly so we've, we've mentioned it on this podcast before I've said for, for months now how much of a massive fan of him I am Caicedo again was brilliant obviously come back after being suspended for, for the Arsenal game for Brighton um, and he's just got Deserves just got playing some absolutely beautiful stuff. I mean, obviously helps out when you've got someone like Idrissa Gay playing a god awful back pass. I don't even know where he's trying to pass it for Pasco Gross to run in and score. Um, so Everton certainly made it easier for Brighton, but yeah, Brighton have, have been massively imp- impressive under Deserby um, and looked like a, a good bet to get European football of some sorts this season. Um, and I think it go right down to the wild, but they could easily finish in the top six or the top seven um, and get European football. And it'd be, you know justly deserves because of how good they've played the season but yeah for Everton that Southampton game is massive and the game after is against West Ham who are also really struggling so if Lampard isn't gone by the Southampton game if he if he's if he's won that game he, he probably stays in a job but if he loses that you imagine they get someone in before the West Ham game to try and save their season I think and then just just finally on, on the Premier League talking points um you were at Old Trafford for, for United's 3-0 win against Bournemouth. And I think the talking point that I saw online after the game was mostly surrounding Luke Shaw and his performance in the game. Um, obviously grabbed a goal um, and was, by all accounts, really, really impressive in the game. Um, obviously you were there. So just if you could just first of all sort of talk about his performance live from the stands and, and what impressed you most because I've seen a lot of shouts about how good he just was. But yeah, obviously it was you know an amazing performance, uh, a goal, and then the pre-assist for for Rashford's goal, a, a lovely ball over the top for Bruno, and he just squares it across for for three nil. Um, yeah, w- w- when you're watching in 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 the stands, you, you don't really when it comes to like left backs or, or just full backs in general, you, you don't really appreciate it as much as you would say an, an attack because they're, they're, they're the you know, like someone like Rashford right now, because they're they're the players that get you off off his seat. Mm. But, but it, it it's just the the like the 
just the all-round performance, like defensively, just so sound, progressing the ball. He always wraps the balls into Martial's feet so well. And for the goal, um, it sort of reminded me a little bit, you know, because he starts to move in, in his own half. Um, it reminded me of um, Berbatov. Against I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> because yeah. it's just it's just so beautiful. He's just sort of, once he does his role in the build-up, he's just sort of, you know, sort of trotting along into the box. Gone actually picks him out, and a beautiful right foot finish. It's, to be honest, I didn't really know he could use his right foot, which is <laughs> a bit of a surprise. He finished it so nicely. Um, but yeah, no, he's, he's in this vein of form right now um, that we've seen from in, in, in the past, where you're just thinking, yeah, we, we've got one of the best left backs in the world right now. Yeah, I think. The start of the season, obviously, Ten Hag signed Malassia, obviously from the Eredivisie, like he's done with Lissandro and Anthony. And Malassia was was the starter at the start of the year and, and was playing pretty well by the fans. Like I think Malassia was, was decent at that start of the season. I don't think he was he was a problem. Um, and then Shaw came into the team and he's sort of been undroppable since. And I think that yeah, United have sort of you know locked off that position. They don't need to invest in a left back for a long, long time. Um, with Shaw and Malassia there, and and Shaw's been brilliant. And I think obviously he was good at the World Cup as well for England. Um, no doubt about him being England's best left back. And the question I think is 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 he sort of the best left back in the league? Is he the best left back in the world? And obviously United fan yourself, what are your your thoughts on that? Uh, I'd, I'd probably say he's, he's definitely on form right now. Probably in the league, yes. Because mm-hmm. you'd say Cancelo hasn't really been playing since the, the World Cup restart. Yeah, quite strange. Rico Lewis has been fancied at right back and um, it's been sort of Ake or um, Sergio Gomez. Ake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ake, Sergio Gomez for um, for the FA Cup game on the weekend against Chelsea. Um, so yeah, on form you'd say, yeah, Luke Shaw's probably left best left back in the league. Um but this has happened before with Luke Shaw, where a signing's come in at left back, and he's had to fight for his position, and he's become, a, you know, one of the best left backs in the world. It happened with Tellez two or three seasons ago, and he was out of the squad for you know two or three weeks. Tellez was the star when he first came in, and it gave him a kick up the backside, and uh, sort of Ollie said to him, you know. Your your position isn't safer. You've got to you know fight for your place. And then and then it became that that season he was quality and he was quality at the Euros as well. Um, but then the Ralph Rangnick season uh, and Ali's second season came and he was just absolutely terrible. It, it's like he sort of went back into that sort of comfortable position. Um, and his his level of performance along with Maguire's as well sort of coincided that they they both fell off a cliff. Um, and then once again, you, you see Malassia come in, take his spot for a bit. You know, in the Liverpool game and the, the, the following games after that, it's given him that kick up the backside again. So he, he's, he's someone who he, he needs that competition to really get him sort of focused on uh, what what he needs to do to be a quality player. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, one that I hadn't really considered, and certainly. Gives a little bit of indication about Shaw's form, and, and I think yeah, like you said, on, on form he is is right up there in the league, um, and and in the world I think because obviously Hernandez had a, a little bit of a disappointing World Cup and has sort of seen his stock drop um off the back of that. Obviously you got Alfonso Davies um at Bayern Munich, Robertson at Liverpool's not had his best season. Um, so Shaw's certainly up there, but obviously it remains to be seen if he can if he can keep up that form really. Um. We'll go on to Serie A now then. Um, we would talk about Chelsea's um, back-to-back defeats to Manchester City and, and the problems facing Graham Potter. Um, but we've talked so much about Chelsea in the podcast recently um, and we're planning sort of to, to leave that for this episode, but we are planning to do sort of a special episode on sort of how to save Chelsea, what Chelsea need to do to to resurrect their form this season and in coming seasons, whether Potter's the right man, which signs they need, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we'll be looking to record that in the next couple of days, next couple of weeks. Um, so stay tuned for that. But on to Serie A. Obviously, there, was, there were two games, um, one in midweek and one at the weekend. We've obviously mentioned Juventus against Udinese as I was there. Um, but we'll start with Inter then because they can't seem to get any momentum. Um, 
Midweek had an unbelievable win against league leaders Napoli. Um, it was probably Inter's best performance of the season. Nullified Kraut Skelly, nullified Osman into to very little chances, um, and played really well themselves. The goal they scored, um, De Marco, is an unbelievable cross from the left, and Jeco really clinical head. Obviously, jeko has been unbelievable. Um, for almost a, for a decade, over a decade now, probably one of the most underrated strikers in the world. I think, yeah, still doing it for Inter, but a striker who's not quite doing it for Inter is, is Romelu Lukaku. Came on um, in the two-all draw against Monza. Um, by all accounts, from what I've heard, he was pretty bad. Um, according to my colleague at Football Transfers, Carlo Garganese, who uh, is a co-host on the Italian Football Podcast, um, it was one of Lukaku's worst performances of his career. Carlo tweeted that, um, which says a lot when you consider sort of Lukaku's former Chelsea in that seven-touch game against Crystal Palace last year. Um, but he's far from the only one. Like Inter, two-all draw against Monzo. It was a 93rd-minute own goal from Dumfries. Um that sealed a point for Monza. You know, Inter went one nil up through Dami, and then a minute later conceded one all. Um, they were gifted Lautaro Martinez's goal, centre half playing um, with the ball way too slowly. Lautaro was able to to nick it and score, and it's sort of you know Inter like winning against league leaders Napoli. Napoli have looked so sort of unbeatable really this season, and then to draw against Monza in the fashion they did is just so disappointing. Um, like Inzaghi just can't seem to get the run of games going. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of summed up their season so far. You know, they beat the, the, the only unbeaten team in you know top five leagues, and then just a horror draw to Monza. Um, but in, in that Napoli game, it did seem like there was like a a sort of a, a an extra gear that they went into. You know, Darmian just completely locked up Ferrat Skellia. It was an incredible defensive display from him alone. Mm. Um. And then, yeah, I mean, Lukaku in that Napoli game, you, you saw the signs that this is still a player who's got a hangover from missing, you know, four big chances against Croatia in a in a knockout, but mm. basically a, a knockout game in that group stage. Um, it, it was terrible then. I, I didn't watch the, the Monza game, but um, you could see that he, he's just not at the level right now. To be to be playing football to be playing football for Inter, not not entirely because he could probably you know, do a job at five aside, but um, is <laughs> it, it, it's he's it, just someone who is just completely shot of any sort of confidence, just in, in his own technical ability and just it, it, even like the, the the runs he was making against Napoli, they just weren't really there. Like he, he's usually such a, a good like intelligent mover across the pitch when it comes to his his runs short and and, and then in behind but that just wasn't really there yeah I think it's clear that Dzeko is going to be favoured ahead of him um Dzeko's clearly the man in in better form um and Inter probably can't really afford to drop Edin Dzeko um and with Lukaku looking so poor it does beg the question as to where his future lies because obviously only on loan at Inter but based on his form I'm not quite sure if I can see Inter sort of paying to sign him back permanently. His form, obviously, Chelsea have, have not really had a goal scorer, but the chance creation is more the problem for them. Um, and I'm not sure if Graham Potter will be a big fan of Lukaku. And, and based on form right now, he, he certainly wouldn't be an upgrade on the options Chelsea have because he's also in poor form like the rest of their forwards. So I'm just not really sure what happens to Lukaku this summer. Like That will be a really interesting transfer storyline that that will play out throughout probably, I imagine, the, the majority of the summer because I'm not quite sure if there's too many destinations or too many clubs that will want to sign him, especially when Chelsea know, look, look we paid you know a, a club record fee for him. We're going to want to earn some of that money back. They paid, what, I think it was €115 million, Euros, which works out at £97.5 million. Pounds. Like, that's a lot of money spent on him and they're not going to want to sell him for you know, a huge loss. They're, they're going to acknowledge that if they do sell him, it's going to be for a loss, but they're not going to want to sell him for, for 20 million or something. They're going to want to recoup a lot more of that fee and especially given his wages as well, like there's not many that, that many clubs that are going to be able to afford that. So 
Lukaku's future will be a really, really interesting one. Um, and speaking of sort of Chelsea forwards, Sammy Abraham scored a, an equaliser in the 93rd minute. Milan were, were 2-0 up and sort of cruising, really. I think uh, I watched the highlights of this game, didn't watch it live because um, I was sort of travelling back from Turin. But the commentator, when um, Perveda scored, was like, yeah, that's wrapped it up for Milan, 2-0 up. Um but it wasn't. Ibanez scored in, in the 87th minute and then sort of Tammy scored in the 93rd minute. Both were set pieces. Um, just classic Jose, really. Um, yeah, yeah. No, this was a classic Jose big game performance where <laughs> I, I did watch this game and it was just that they were completely cruising to a loss in the first half. It was the classic passive, we'll just sit off, we'll, we'll just... We'll just try and nullify you. That Liao was getting frustrated at times uh, a lot in that first half. He couldn't really get the space that he wanted to, you know, d- do his sort of post move, that little step over, then run on, on the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's a, it's a, a performance from a Jose Mourinho team in a big game that I've become so accustomed to down the years, especially you know as a United fan, just having absolutely no hope of, of a result in, in a big game. And then, you know, they finally get an incentive to, oh, oh, wait a minute, we need to actually go and win this game here. And then they do. Uh, or they don't win the game, but they, they equalise in, in dramatic fashion. Obviously, two set-piece goals. Uh, the, the, the first one, I, I don't think... Um, Tatar who can do a lot about it, um, yeah. is, is an absolute bullet header. Oh, it, yeah, um, really, really powerful from both. From Ibanez. But maybe the second one, uh, I can't remember who heads the, heads the first uh, one towards goal. But I think it's Matic. I think it's Matic. Yes, yes, it was Matic. Um, could he do better to maybe parry it away? Because it is sort of straight at me. He could you know, stretch out the hand and push it out and not straight towards Tammy's feet, who obviously you know finishes it off and um, you know, shatters... Milan's heart. Shattered my yeah, heart, definitely. <laughs> yeah, Tammy's obviously not had the best of luck this season in terms of in front of goal, especially compared to, to last season when he became sort of, I think it was the record goal scorer for a Roma in a single season for a, a foreign player. Um, so obviously had a little bit of a down year for him. Um, but, you know, Roma are proving to be, you know, I don't know where they're going to end up. They're seventh right now. Um, three draws in the last four games. Um, obviously a win to Bologna in between those, but you know they're a very strange side Roma under Jose. I'm not. I'm not quite sure what to make of them. But Milan, yeah, like you say, will be kicking themselves because this is you know a massive chance to capitalise on. Obviously Napoli losing um, in midweek against in. So obviously Milan won during during that game week. But but this time it's it's another opportunity to start closing that gap. And they're now third behind Juve on goal difference after Juve's win. And yeah, I do, I, I do fear that Milan. Even though Lapley have, have sort of dropped, dropped a you know three points there against the fear Milan might might be a little way off the title challenge. I mean, Nap- it remains to be seen about Napoli. Like, can is was that a one-off blip against Inter because they were quite poor? I thought, um, or you know, is it something that will be continue that kind of form? But with Juve looking, I wouldn't say dominant based on how they're winning games, but looking very hard to beat. Um, Milan might might be just challenging for Champions League football, which which probably wouldn't be what they would have expected going into this season. And moving on to Lazio then, because they have had um, an absolutely awful week. Um, like they've been good under Maurizio Sarri. Um, I think that he's finally starting to get his sort of footballing philosophy that he showed at Napoli sort of going um, in the Italian capital. But, you know, a really, really bad couple of games. Um, 2-1 loss to Lecce. Um, in midweek, they were 1-0 up thanks to Immobile um, and lost 2-1. And then a 2-all draw against Empoli this weekend, despite the fact they were 2-0 up until the 83rd minute. So they conceded in the 83rd and 93rd minute to drop two points. Um, they're now fifth level on points with Atalanta and Roma. Um, and yeah, the goals they conceded are just really, really poor. The first one... Um, is a counter-attack the Empoli score that for some reason Lazio decide to sort of step so many players up, um, even though they're, they're winning the game and are in a comfortable position. Um, players start charging towards the ball to sort of press on the halfway line, even though there's there's loads of space in behind, which is a really bizarre decision. 
Um, and then the second goal is a short corner. Pedro gets nutmegged um, in the corner. And then it is a really poor cross. And you think, okay, well, despite that, they've sort of dealt with it. But Felipe Anderson, you know, it's a really poor clearance straight to Marin on the edge of the box. Um, he finished it really nicely, to be fair to him. But yeah, that's, you know, a 2-1 loss to Lecce and a 2-1 draw to Empoli is, is a really, really bad week for Lazio, who are hoping to get European football this year. Mm. Uh, one thing I will say is that the first goal they conceded against Empoli, it's it's obviously naive to leave, you know, so so many little players back for the corner. Um, but the the way Empoli sort of counter is so clinical. It's it's so sort of efficient the way they sort of play that ball over the top and then oh, who was it? It was um. I think it was Cam- Cambiaghi who sort of squares the ball for Caputo and he, the, the finish Caputo fires off is, you know, emphatic. So in, in, in terms of, yeah, there was obviously defensive naivety from, from Lazio to sort of leave so little players back. But also sometimes you just got to commend a, a quality counter-attacking goal. Yeah, I do. Th- yeah, it was well played for him, but I do just think at 2-0 up in you know, the 83rd minute, like you can't, some of the some of the decision making as well in that counter attack to go and sort of try and win the ball back immediately rather than just sort of get back into a position I just thought was was naive um and yeah the the, the clearance from Felipe Anderson for for the for the equalizer um really really poor obviously Felipe Anderson scored what two minutes in um but that was quite poor and Lazio from a real position of strength um going into the World Cup break of obviously it's it's two losses and, and a draw in the last three games and thankfully you know the, the the saving grace for them is that Atalanta and Roma sort of the chasing pack are also in pretty poor form um so they sort of got away with it but that sort of gap to it you know they've, they've let Inter overtake them recently um so Champions League is looking less and less likely they still can obviously achieve that but Disappointing, I think, because they have real potential. I think under Sarri, they've, they've, Sarri's starting to play his football, but not not quite worked out this week. That's for sure for Lazio. Yeah, no, it is it's quite strange. All all the sort of top you know seven or eight teams right now, apart from Juve, seem to be sort of faltering. Even Napoli to a certain extent, because they, it wasn't a routine win against Sampdoria. They did have to grind for that result. Um, and obviously they lost, you know, their first game back against Inter. But it, it seems everyone seems to be dropping points right now, apart from Juve, which to, to me is just incredible considering their start of the season. Right then, we'll go on to La Liga. Then um, the final league of our talking points, obviously Liga, and uh, wasn't um, playing this week, just cup games in France, and Bundesliga's not not restarted again um, after the World Cup. Um, so we'll move on to Real Madrid then, um, just to start off La Liga talking points because their poor record away to Villarreal continues. Two um, one loss. It means they haven't won away to Villarreal since twenty seventeen. Um, but it's been a fixture that's been had you know a lot of draws and stuff. It was Villarreal's first win against Real in nine attempts. Um, and one stat that has come out of the game has been it's the first time in their history that Real Madrid didn't have a Spanish player in the starting lineup, which is obviously pretty immense stat that they've had a Spanish player in the starting lineup every single game they've played until this one. Um, they've had moments where they've had non-Spanish players, uh, a full Spanish, non-Spanish team um, in games, but never started like that. Um, so obviously with, with Carver Howe um, in and out the side and, and you know, Ceballos finding minutes hard to come by San Vicencio, it, it's sort of bound to happen sooner rather than later. Um, but they were poor against Villarreal and Militao right back, I thought, just didn't work at all. Like That was one that Ancelotti got wrong, I think. Yeah, I agree massively with that. Um, Militao, for me, is uh, Real's best centre-back. Why wouldn't you play your best centre-back at centre-back? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's not anything revolutionary. You know, Lucas Vasquez has played right-back many times before, you know, over the last two or three seasons. He's sort of become a, a full-time right-back almost. He, he is quite a, sort of a utility player. He can play right right back to a a, a decent enough level. Play, yeah, playing Militao there, it's it's just it's it's uncomfortable to watch for me because it he doesn't look in terms of when he's on the ball aesthetically pleasing. 
at centre back. So when you put him to right back, that just gets amplified to a, a million because he just looks so uncomfortable, sort of out wide. I think. Yeah, I agree. I think the the passing angles and and the way he receives it under pressure and stuff just isn't there. And also like the positioning side of it, like defensively, I think there was a couple of instances where. Militao was sort of out of position and Rudiger to come and cover that side and that allowed Joe Moreno to be free in the middle and Villarreal found him a couple of times and I think that it just sort of unbalances the team having a centre-back like it's fine having I don't know someone like Kunde play at right back like he does for Barcelona like Kunde is I see him as a centre-back um, probably a little bit in terms of he probably needs to play in a back three on the right of that as a centre-back um, but that kind of works because he has a lot of history of playing at right back. Whereas Militao just has played centre back so regularly, um, and I'm not quite sure why you'd shift him out of there. Um, I think if you're going to shift any of the centre backs for Real to play fullback, like it just has to be Alaba to left back instead of Mendy, who I've been a little bit disappointed with recently because I think at Leon he was really really promising for Alon Mendy, and it's not quite lived up to the hype really. Um, and I think that Ramage's best back four is Carver Howe with Militao and Rudiger at centre-half and Alaba at left-back. I think that would be best. And I think Militao being the full-back of their centre-backs just doesn't really work. Um, yeah, Real Madrid, really unconvincing, really. Villarreal, it's four wins in a row for them, two in the cup, two in the league. And it seems like football's starting to take shape under Setien. And obviously, didn't work out for him at Barcelona, but his better side was really nice to watch. And I'm a big fan of Jeremy Pino and Samuel Chiquese getting minutes um, in a 4-3-3 with Moreno up top rather than Emery's conservative 4-4-2 like we've seen at, at him play at Villarreal. We've seen it at Aston Villa as well. Yeah, yeah. it's honestly great to see Chiquese finally get consistent minutes again because two or three years ago before he came to Villarreal, he was, you know... One of the great, you know, uh, emerging Nigerian footballers. Um, I think he's immensely talented, and uh, just the aesthetic of a left-footed right winger is always going to be just beautiful. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with Mendy in in the fact that I think that this was the game where he really did start to lose patience with him in terms of building the back. The, the amount of times he just gave away just silly passes, just simple five, ten-yard passes to Tony Crows. Uh, I saw a clip of him just absolutely firing in at Tony Crows and he was never getting there. Um, yeah, no, I think Madrid fans are calling for Mendy's head now because they agree he's a great defender. He's got that side of the game on lock, but when it comes to a fullback at Madrid. You need to be so much more than that in terms of on the ball and producing quality moments in the final third like Marcelo did for, you know, 15 years or so. Yeah, I think that is... It's a hard comparison to go by like replacing a club legend like Marcelo. Um, and I don't think Mendy's done like a really bad job at it. I don't think he's been like a flop of a signing. Um, but I think that is sort of one area for Madrid they need to improve if they want to take this team to another level. And, and fullbacks are the way... That they can do that. Um, Mendy, even Carvajal. I uh, don't. I don't think that's a particularly strong fullback pairing. So that is definitely a weak spot for Madrid. But Villarreal, yeah, it's nice to see Chukwueze get minutes. Pino obviously get got quite a few minutes under Emery, but nice to see him get minutes. Obviously, quite a, a two-footed winger and has been linked. Was linked with Arsenal in the summer. And nice to see him get a goal in this game as well because that is one thing that he can improve on. I think final third um, contributions. Another thing Chukwueze can do as well. Um, but Football's, you know, starting to take shape under Seti and starting to get his philosophies implemented at Villarreal. And it's, it was bound to take a little bit of time. I think after like two weeks, there were calls for his head. Um, but it was bound to take time to get an Emery system out of, you know, players' minds really because it is so structured, it's so rigid, and playing a different style of football was bound to take time before it worked. Um. But it is nice to see Villarreal because they do have some really nice technically gifted players, some wingers like you've got there with Dan Juma as well that are really direct 1v1 um, specialists. Um, so it's nice to see Setien sort of tapping into that, whereas Emery sort of limited it a little bit. And um, we'll go on to Barcelona. And then we've mentioned Real Madrid um, and sort of how poor they were to start with. Uh, and Barcelona got the job done against Atletico Madrid. Obviously a 1-0 win. Um, Dembele's goal, um, really nice finish, but but the the plaudits have, have rightly so gone to Pedri for 
um, the dribble that he produced um, in in the build up to the goal that sort of opened up um, Atletico's um, midfield, opened up the whole play. It looked like they were in a pretty decent structure, like you imagine Atletico would be. Um, but you know the dribbling technique, the pauser that Pedri has, just sort of opened that up, and that is what you get when you have a player of that quality in your midfield. Yeah, um, pause. That's what sort of opens it up. It's, it's great to see you know midfielders understand. It's not all about when you're trying to dribble through defence. It's not about the touches you make. It's the touches you don't. You sort of wait for you know the midfield to. <laughs> I saw that look there, Cam. Very approving of my philosophy. I was, yeah. No, that was a uh, very eloquently put, mate. I was Thank impressed. you. Um, but yeah, no, he waits a second. Griezmann is coming to him. From, from behind and he just sort of waits for the midfield to open up and then he drives through plays it to Gavi there was for some reason there was complaints about a foul uh, even though he's just sort of dummying the ball to, to Dembele and then you know Dembele finishes off emphatically because when the ball drops to Usman Dembele there in a big game I thought oh god is this World Cup <laughs> final part two but no the, the, the finish on, on his well, I, I, what foot is but it's it's one of his great feet, and, and he slots it in, you know, very nicely. Yeah, and obviously Boston will be will be glad to get the job done. Obviously, Real Madrid losing is, is a massive positive for them, um, trying to win La Liga this year. Um, and it's sort of the defense that's been the eye catching thing. Obviously, in this game, you'd imagine out of the two teams would be Atletico Madrid, who have sort of the best defense. But no, it was Barcelona. Like they've still got the best defensive record in Europe. They conceded six goals in the league. Um, and that's even with the likes of Kunde and Araujo being regularly injured. That's even with playing Marcus Alonso at centre-back. Um, obviously, Alejandro Balde is very talented, but a 19-year-old is playing regularly at left-back. Like, it's been quite a mis- like mismatched Barcelona backline. Um, like, Tostegan's been on- the, you know, the real only sort of regular for them. Um, and they've still got such a good defensive record, which is incredible, really. Like, I mean, Xavi's done a really good job there at making them defensively secure because you imagine that, you know, Real Madrid, like the the, the quality gulf between the, the two defenders, especially when Araujo's been injured so much, there is a big difference there. But, you know, Barcelona have conceded like a third of the goals nearly that Real Madrid have, um, which is pretty spectacular, really. And, you know, it goes to show what a good job Xavi's done because... Obviously, the style of football, the possession play, um, has been you know, applauded. Got, got its plaudits, and rightly so. Xavi's done a really good job at that. But I think the defensive side is something that I haven't quite seen him praised for that much, but it deserves to be really. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the defense on paper that they've been you know using for the last couple of months, well, since the start of the season, you, you think that is going to leak goals like you wouldn't believe, especially the way that Xavi wants to play with his expansive style. The, the spaces in behind on the counter-attack would be too much for someone like Marcus Alonso, who's ne- never had any sort of you know running power whatsoever um, to cover. But yeah, no, it, it is credit to, to Xavi that he's you know seeming to get this sort of defensive structure fairly you know locked down. Um but I'm I'm still seeing, you know, despite you know six goals conceded, what one loss all season in the league, I'm still seeing Barca fans not happy with with the performances, which I, I do find quite confusing. Uh, and another thing I want to mention is, I, I, obviously, Simeone's you know style in these games is always going to be the same, but it's just it, it's like they only play once they've gone a goal down because. The last thirty minutes, they were dominant over Barcelona, searching for that goal. But it's always we have to go one nil down for us to sort of have any incentive to you know attack. And I'm, I'm sick of it, Cam. You know what I mean? I'm gonna have a breakdown here. There's yeah. so many talented players who can take the game to Barca, and they just never do. It's just that like the first half is just such a stalemate uh, until the goal. It's just. Athletic just holding on for their lives. Yeah, I think that that is clearly something that it's just Simeone down to a tee. They've won once in five league games um, and allowed sort of the chasing pack to catch up to them. Like it is a competitive race to finish in the top four in La Liga this year. Like we've seen Villarreal, three wins in a row and Setien finding some form. Athletic club, um, two draws in a row. 
So a little bit disappointing for them. But Real Betis won at the weekend. Sociedad have got three wins in a row. So like Atleti are by no means guaranteed to make top four. Like they're five points behind Real Sociedad now, um, who are going really, really strong and are one of the best two teams to watch in Europe this season. Um, and Betis will be there right to the end. And you imagine Villarreal will be as well. Um, so Atleti will be facing, you know, a test to get into Champions League football. Um, and that is with their finances as well. There'll be a massive blow if they can't make it into the Champions League. Um, but talking about the other end of La Liga to end the podcast, then Sevilla have finally won a game of football. Um, they're back. Um, I mean, it was a it was a two one win um, over Getafe. So maybe not the most most luxurious um, win, but they were two 0 up, and I think nerves would have started to go around um, the stadium when Borja Mayoral made it two one in the eighty seventh minute. Um, but Sevilla did manage to hang on um, and win 2-1 thanks to the guys from Acuna and Rafa Mir. Um, it's their first league win since the 15th of October. It's only their third league win of the entire season. Um, they're no longer in the relegation zone. Um, they're up to 17th, but they are level on points with 18th place Cadiz. They're only one point behind 16th place Celta Vigo because Cadiz and Celta Vigo also won this weekend. So results around them didn't exactly go in their favour. But Sevilla on the board, so that's a, a good thing, I guess, under Sam Pauli. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, the, yeah, the, the the unlucky part there is team dig that win, but it's you know a, a step in the right direction for for Sevilla because we you know we've been talking about it so much how they have to get out of this situation. Um, and yeah, the, the, sometimes it's just you know a, a couple of fixed you know four days prior that they win five nil against you know Lenares Deportivo. You know, top top team in the lower <laughs> divisions, uh, a five nil win, and it's that sort of winning the cup that can sort of get something sparked in this team and sort of get the momentum going. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure the team talk after that five nil win was, "Come on, guys! You know, you can't score goals. You can't win games. Let's, let's get it going." Um, I'm just wondering now, you know, can I lump on Sevilla to win the league? Because I think they're going to win every single game. Now. <laughs> I mean, if you, have you, I'm sure you're trying some really good odds on Sevilla to win La Liga this season. Um, what are they on? 15 points, Boston on 41. So they've got a bit of a mountain to climb, but they've got a good squad, I guess. Um, but yeah, no, well, relegation. What, what was it? I always said mountains are there to be climbed, eh? And then <laughs> we beat PSG, got three, got tickled by Barca. Yeah, um, but yeah, focus will most definitely be on surviving this year for Sevilla. Obviously, Elche are down. I mean, they've got four points. They've not won a game all season, but Espanyol, who are 19th, we've got 14 points. Cadiz on 15, Sevilla 15, Celta Vigo 16, Valladolid 17, Almeria 17, Getafe 17, Girona 18, even Valencia with 19. Like, it is really close um, down the bottom in La Liga, so... Like if Sevilla can pick up a few wins and can get some momentum going, they can sort of escape the bottom of the table and and move back up into into mid table. Um, but it's going to have to come quickly because you know Celta Vigo and Cadiz will also be taking sort of you know belief from wins this weekend. So it's by no means an easy job um, for Sevilla, but a step in the right direction um, finally because we've mentioned it quite a few times this podcast how it's been a really really dire season um, but they finally won a game um, for Sevilla fans we can we can discuss something positive um, about them for once which we haven't really been able to do on the podcast this year um, but Jamie that's all we've got time for today thank you very much for joining me um, obviously got back from Turin um, so really enjoyable for me to, to get away this weekend and, and copy you in terms of going to a, to a game abroad this season um, we'll have to make uh, a back to go trip abroad somewhere before the end of the season. Um, but yeah, no, we've uh, like I mentioned, we're going to try and and bring a special on on Chelsea soon. Um, I'm also going to try and bring in a few extra episodes that aren't the review. Um, to your feed, sort of discussing more wider topics. Um, in football, like the Chelsea stuff, um, what transfers in, etc. Um, so if you have any ideas on episodes like that that you'd like us to cover, um, then let us know on our Twitter accounts. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you next time.